The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. Technically, it was solving a problem. In the early days of Snapchat, the problem was, how do I send dick pics without leaving evidence? Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode 17. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And in this episode, we are taking a curious peek into ideas, spinning ideas into business, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. And I'm excited to bring you our guest because he also happens to be my husband, Stephen Saltzman. Stephen is a venture capitalist for Intel Capital, and Intel Capital is one of the largest venture capital funds in the world. And I want to give a little bit of background because, yeah, you know, he's my husband and we have a lot of fun in this podcast episode. And I would love to entice him to be on more episodes if people are interested in this topic or in these topics or the role of curiosity in any of these topics. But I want to give you a little bit of background about Stephen because he's not just my husband and that's not just why he's on this podcast. He also has a really interesting background and particularly a really interesting background for a venture capitalist. Stephen has lived a life of entrepreneurship. He grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. After leaving college, he went to work in advertising in New York and in Houston, and he came into tech during the dawn of the personal computer. And he talked about how he went from northern bathroom tissue to personal computers, and the story is fun, and we share a little bit about that, a little peek into that story. He went on to start what became one of the largest Macintosh software companies in the world. He also did a startup within a big company for Intel when they were launching their wireless division, and then made his way to the venture capital side. So he has an interesting perspective from entrepreneurship and hands-on, kind of gritty, that hands-on kind of garage-level startup, all the way to investing in large and small companies and cultivating and curating those companies for venture capital fund. So we talk about what advice should people heed when they have an idea and how to turn that idea into a business. And then if you need funding, how to look at the different kinds of funding. How do you understand the difference between angel investing and venture investing or strategic investing? And how do you prepare yourself at each stage of those? When you take money, how do you do it so that you can position your company for future success should you need future rounds of financing, for example, institutional investors? So we talk about the road to becoming a VC, how to manage a board, mistakes that Stephen has made along the way. I poked on him to reveal some of those. And also what constitutes good board hygiene. 
common forecasting errors and what to do when you have an idea and how do you protect your ideas. We get a little nerdy, a little technical for personal computer history buffs. There's a few little fun stories along the way, but it's mostly practical and I ask a lot of just curious questions to try to extract the insights and actionable bits that you can use in case you have an idea that you might want to spin into a business. And so without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Stephen Saltzman. Welcome upstairs to my little studio. I am so glad that I am able to weasel you to my interview chamber. Well, thank you. So many friends have come up to me and said, I have an idea for a business, or I have a friend that has an idea for a business. Can I run it by your husband? And what does he do? And what's a venture capitalist do? That I thought, wow, that could make a very cool interview, a peek inside venture capital. So let's start with the very obvious question. What is a venture capitalist? And are there different kinds? And just kind of have at it because I need to unpack this sometimes even for myself. I don't understand what the hell you do. Venture capital in general is investing in typically non-public companies. So private companies, they can be very early stage, two guys and a dog, or they can be quite large companies. Within that, there's infinite number of subtypes, just like in music, you've got all the different subgenres. In venture capital, you have some that specialize just in a specific geography or just in a specific stage of company, like pre-revenue or high growth, you know, larger company, or just in a specific vertical market or industry or technology sector. Okay, but you hear about strategic venture. You hear about angel investors. What are the different kinds of venture investing? From the investor standpoint, I guess what you're asking is really what is the motivation behind what they're doing? So an angel investor typically is somebody with experience growing startup companies into something that's been successful enough to give them money to invest. And they're very often people who can contribute at least a network to help with recruiting, with customer introductions, or or so on. And they're typically looking at smaller amounts of investments at the earlier stage before the company needs huge dollars. You know, very often an angel seed round is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I have seen companies as high as 27 million raised from angels in a seed round. That is a clear outlier. What's an angel? Well, a cynical entrepreneur might say that's a it's a misnomer, but it's <laughs> as opposed to us vulture capitalists. The the angels are individuals who are you know coming to the rescue with cash in the early stages of the company where you need it, and hopefully also bringing some expertise, some contacts, something else with it, and on terms that are hopefully f- generous and flexible enough to um, help you get your business off the ground. And in fact, one of the first things I do tell people who are at the very earliest stages of forming a business and they're looking for angel money or seed rounds is take the money in the form of a convertible note, meaning it's an investment that's a loan that the loan holder is able to convert into equity at the first institutional financing. So in venture capital, you have seed round, then you have what's called series A, 
which is typically your first institutional money, Series B, Series C, and so on. And and typically Series A is when the company is still pre-revenue, and by Series B, you've got some initial revenue. But that part can vary. But what happens more frequently than it should, because there's enough history for people who do their homework to see the problem with it, is very often people go to their friends and family. That was the classic angel investor, is just your personal networks, your friends and family. And with that, it's like, hey, they love you. You're their nephew, their son, their daughter, their niece, whatever. And they believe in you and they want to show their support for you and be encouraging and all those wonderful things. And so they may not be professional investors. And so they may be sort of overly generous in in their terms. And you might think, well, that's great. I haven't given up very much of the company. And I, you know, so they've got that much more for the future. The problem is when you try to bring in an institutional investor on the next round and you need more money, the institutional investor goes, well, there's no way we're coming in at that kind of valuation. That's crazy. So instead, they can either walk away or they can do what's called a cram down, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Say, okay, you thought you were buying company at a valuation of say $20 million, but we're going to pay on a valuation of $10 million. All you guys are going to get your equity diluted much more than you realize. The way around this is you put together this convertible note. It's very simple. It's quick and easy, and it protects the investor. So if things don't get very far, they're first in line to get their money out because it's debt. But if things are on track and they're able to attract institutional money, it will automatically convert at a predetermined discount to that institutional money. So if the institutional money is coming in at a $10 million valuation, for example, they would probably be coming in at a seven and a half or eight million valuation. So typically it's a 20 to 25% discount. Okay. So just for clarification, make sure I understand this. Institutional investors are what? People who are investing professionally somebody else's money. Got it. So it could be a company has a venture capital arm and you're investing that company's money. It could be a pool of wealthy people that invest in a fund and you are, and the venture capitalist is investing their money, pooled money. Is that? Right. So when you look at venture capital funds, the traditional venture capitalist what would go to what are called limited partners, which historically were big endowment funds like university endowments and wealthy families. And they would collect a pool of money in exchange for a fee and a percentage of the profits that that fund generated. Then starting really in the 80s, but more so in the 90s, there were corporate strategic investors like Intel Capital, whom I work for, where it is actually investing off the balance sheet of that corporation. And their investments are typically aligned with the strategic interest of the company putting up the money. Okay, so I understand. So now you're saying, and this is really good advice, because if someone has an idea, the first people that they're going to go to are people that would qualify as angels, their friends, their family. And what you're saying is they should still be aware that even though that money might come quite easily, there are some strategic things that you can do that make the second round, if you need that second round or third round or whatever, much more likely. So you're suggesting that the angels give favorable terms. So they might say, sure, we'll value and invest in your company at a $20 million valuation. 
even though institutional investors would look at it maybe like more like a $10 million valuation because they're trying to be nice. The angels are trying to be generous. But that can bite you in the butt when you come back and maybe need the institutional investors or venture capitalists to invest later. So you're suggesting that you do one of two things. You either, one, make it in the form of a loan, or the second thing was what? It's really what's called a convertible note. So it's a loan that would automatically convert into equity at a predetermined discount to the institutional money. But there's another reason beyond just planning for future rounds or fairness to the entrepreneur or the investor. Most friends and family don't know how to value a company that's really just a concept. And uh, it, it can be paralyzing. So you can people just like, God, I really like the idea and I believe in you, but gosh, I don't know how to eat. And it can actually slow down how long it takes you to get your funding put together, which puts everything on hold because you can't pay employees, you can't buy equipment, whatever you need. So by making a convertible note, you eliminate the whole valuation question. You just say, hey, we're going to raise more money later. We're going to need to before we get cash flow positive. We will have professional institutional investors. They'll set the valuation and we think that's going to be a year out. So because you're taking the risk now early, you should get, say, a 25% discount to what that round a year from now will be. But this initial fund will get us enough proof points to attract an institutional investor. So you don't even have to worry about the valuation. You're kind of saying whatever the right. institutional investor figures out will be discounted X. And this is in the form right. of a convertible note. So they'll figure out what the valuation is. You're getting a discount that recognizes you're coming in with earlier risks. So you're being rewarded for coming in earlier. And everybody just gets to ignore the valuation question. Because frankly, when you're valuing, say you've got uh, you know, a few people and they've got a PowerPoint and it's like, okay, what is that really worth? Well, frankly, not much. So it's kind of ridiculous to try to put a valuation on some of that stuff too early. It's better like push it out until you've had a chance to build enough value into the company. Okay. That's great advice. I want to take a step back and look at your background, your story and how you got into this and then I have a couple of questions. Is that a normal way of getting into this, being a venture capitalist? If someone is listening and says, hey, I want to be a venture capitalist, is this a normal way? Is there a normal way? Or are there so many different ways of doing it? And maybe you could reveal some of the unconventional ways or unconventional steps along the way that you've experienced that you think help you be a good venture capitalist. So my path definitely isn't the cliched path to becoming a venture capitalist. Going back to the earlier days of venture capital, it was people who had built companies in the past, typically from earlier stages, maybe not company founders, but earlier stages to being successful. And then that's if they demonstrated their expertise in an industry with a technology, whatever, were able to attract other people's money to invest alongside them. So that, that background in, in the technology world, which is where the preponderance of venture capital is, was people who typically had an engineering degree or degrees, plural, and later maybe added an MBA. That would be the more cliched. Over time, as the venture capital industry got bigger, you saw a lot more people with sort of a deal-making background, whether it was the deal-making side of the legal profession or investment banking 
uh, and also a lot of management consultants. But they weren't, if you, if you look today, I would guess maybe half of the people in venture capital have experiences as, as real entrepreneurs for early stage companies. And you're saying that's fewer than it used to be or more than Few, it, uh, fewer, fewer than, than it than used to be. be. Um, and, and from my bias, I would argue it's um, one of the problems with venture capital. Is having too few entrepreneurs? There are a lot of people giving advice to early stage companies who haven't been through the cycle on their own, where they're worrying about paying the rent, uh, feeding their kids, whatever, as they go through the typical roller coaster of an early stage startup. Um, I've seen venture capitalists absolutely kill, and I mean literally kill, startups, good startups with great potential, because they wanted to burden them with all of the infrastructure that they were used to in the big companies that they came from. And they're used to very formal processes and formal HR departments and all these things. And so they would saddle these early stage companies with all of this overhead and it, and it killed them. And not just from the cash flow expense, but also from the decision-making paralysis. So it's, you know, with, with the best of intentions, people can, can be really harmful. So I think if you are looking for funding, one of the things to think about is who is really going to have the most insight? Typical venture capital, early stage venture capital investment today does not achieve an exit, which means go public or get acquired for eight or nine years. Wait, eight or nine years? Eight or nine years for an early stage. So you, you read about, oh, somebody started this thing and two years later they got acquired for a gazillion dollars by Google. The reason that made the news in the popular press is because it's such an exception. Because it's news. <laughs> yeah. Typical venture capital investment, say seven to nine years for an early stage investment. So you're going to be living with these people for a long time and they're going to have lots of opportunities to guide and nurture you or steer you down the wrong path. Okay, so I want to touch on your experience because it's not conventional or not cliche and how you landed in this profession and maybe some fun things that people can take away from your experience. Sure. Well, for starters, I don't have a technical degree. My background was actually consumer marketing. My, my prior life, as I refer to it, was started at Ogilvy and Mather Advertising. I was fortunate enough when I wanted to leave the agency business to get on the client side to go to a turnaround of a small electronics company and they needed a marketing person. And I thought, great, now I can get involved with products and pricing and all the stuff that you couldn't do from within an agency, which was really focused more on the, the marketing and promotional side of things. And this was in the 80s. Personal computers were new. I didn't know how to use them. And I was given a personal computer so I could write up my marketing reports and whatever. And I was like, I have no idea what WordStar is, what Lotus123 is. So I went to the local community college, took a basic introduction to microcomputers and business class, which taught me how to use Microsoft Word, Lotus123, and DBase2. And I just fell in love with it. I just thought computers were the coolest things ever. And I was further fortunate in that there was a TA in this class, a woman named Kyoko Moriyasu, and she got a job as a market analyst in a startup division of Intel. And it was the first time Intel was doing shrink wrap products sold through retail distribution 
to end users. So instead of selling to companies like IBM, they were selling packaged product through companies like Businessland and Computerland, if you can remember. And Egghead. And Egghead Software, absolutely. And they were looking for a product manager with consumer marketing experience. All the other requirements they were listing, electrical engineering degree, computer science degree, and an MBA, I didn't have. But I did have the one thing they were looking for, which was consumer marketing experience. And so Kyoko made that connection for me. Well, I want to point out something that you said, because there is a lot of evidence and a lot of research about applying for jobs and looking at the requirements. And there's some pretty interesting science behind the fact that a man will look at the job requirements and there are 10 job requirements and they'll say, oh, I have two of those and they'll apply. Whereas a woman will look and say, oh, I have only eight of those, but I don't have these two and I won't apply. So I guess- Totally the, true. Right? This in particular is a pretty consistent finding. So I will say kudos to you for ignoring the fact that you were totally unqualified for that job. Proceed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was a pretty amazing experience. It was- Intel's PC enhancement operation was what it was called at the time, but we went from six million to a quarter of a billion in three years. So coming out of the world of consumer marketing, working on things like Shell Oil, gasoline, and credit card advertising, and Nikon cameras, and Northern bathroom tissue, to suddenly be in this explosive industry, the early days of personal computing, and all that, it was just complete adrenaline rush. That got me really excited about both technology and startups. When that division got reacquired by what, what we referred to as Big Intel, I thought, wow, I have all these ideas for really cool software products. I, I should go off and create one. So I, I did. Well, actually, I started to work on it. And in the process of researching, found out my idea was not even original. But there were four companies already working on exactly what I was, thought was this really incredible new idea. I have that exact problem. All of the ideas that I have that are brilliant, and particularly when they involve technology, I come to you, I bring you the ideas, and I know you're going to just be, your mind is just going to be blown. And you're like, that was, that is a brilliant idea five years ago, three years ago. So I know how you feel or how you felt <laughs> only too well. All right. So you have this idea and you found out that it was already being done. Yeah. And in fact, one of those four companies was in Portland where I was living. So I called that company to said, hey, we got to have a beer. And it turned out the company was really struggling. There were a couple of young guys who dropped out of Carnegie Mellon to pursue their dream and, and things weren't clicking. But at looking at it, it seemed like there were some obvious mistakes and it wouldn't be that hard to get it on track. I ended up leaving Intel to take over that company. It was called Smethers Barnes doing Macintosh programming tools, and eventually created a company called Now Software to really pay off the debts of that programming tools company. Now Software was initially a, a Macintosh utilities company, and it grew uh, in the early 90s to become the largest Macintosh-only software publisher in the world. From Now Software to where you are now, how did you t kind of tell the stepping stones to where you are now? The next step was... We brought in venture capital to buy out some of the old Smothers Barnes investors. After a year, they decided they wanted to take it a different way than I did, and they controlled the company, so I left. Well, let me ask a question about that. So that was, was that your first experience with venture capital? Yes. Okay. So at that time, 
What advice would you give? About how old were you? 31, 32? 33. What advice would you give your 33-year-old self? Interesting question. Having had a lot more experience with both sides of the table now with venture capital, I think that the venture capitalists that we brought in were very good. I, I don't think there was an issue of bringing in necessarily the wrong people. I think I didn't know Jack about managing a board at the time, and I wasn't communicating properly with the board. And... And I wasn't putting the energy into bringing them along to my vision of how we were going to evolve the company. I took it for granted once their money was in, it's like, hey, they're in. And realistically, it's like, okay, they're in, and now they're going to be anxious. And so I, I certainly did not manage the board well at all. Uh, I, I was, in hindsight, painfully naive about that whole side of things. So is that a big part of being a CEO with venture Money is managing the board. Right. Once you bring in anyone else's money, even with friends and family, you know, they may want to cut you a lot of slack, but there's a lot of obligations, you know, and not just the legal obligations and um, the duty of care and fiduciary duty and those kinds of things. There's sort of the, the moral obligations that go when somebody else is putting their money in your venture. And so it's not like, okay, I'm going to be the emperor or entrepreneur and what I say goes and and you just kind of run roughshod over people to achieve your dream. You have to bring them along and you have to get them to to buy in each step of the way. And you you can't assume that once they've bought in that they're going to stay bought in because people in that business are inherently social. They're networkers. They're curious. So they're pouring over any kind of relevant industry data. They're talking to people, customers, competitors, and everybody they talk to is going to plant different seeds in their brain. So even if you had everybody sign off on your plan for the year in December for the upcoming year, assume that you've got to go back and particularly in the early stages, probably monthly, but even later stages, at least quarterly and say, okay, Here's where we are. This is what we say we're going to do. Why? This is what's changed in the environment. And this is what the best course of action is now. And if there's changes, great, get them to buy into. And if there shouldn't be changes, get them to buy into the fact that you shouldn't be changing what you committed to. So that's not just at the monthly board meetings. No. In fact, one of the things that I didn't know going in and, and kind of learned through this process was a lot of the board meeting is really resolved before the board meeting. So you should be having informal communication with your investors and other board members in between the board meetings, you know, grab coffee, lunch, whatever, if they're in the same town. Uh, and, and also pay particular attention to the independent board members. So very often, and I think it's actually good practice, is you'll bring in somebody and give them stock who doesn't represent any of the investors and they're not friends of the the founder there are people with industry expertise that is missing around the table when you look at the composition of your board so it's it's uh in the term in the industry with the term we usually say it's good deal hygiene mm -hmm. uh, good governance practice to have independent directors on the board and they can carry because they are seen as more objective they don't, they're not coming with any specific agenda other than their own expertise of the industry. 
they can have unusual sway over the other members of the board. So you you ask them and you typically typically give them some kind of equity yes. in exchange. Yeah. And, and and it would vest on a schedule over four years, typically just as it would with the employees that you hire. So they, they earn the stock over time, but it should be sufficient that if they're making a valuable contribution to the board, when you are successful and get acquired to go public, that they're handsomely rewarded for all the time they've invested. Because again, their time won't just be the two hours a month that they're in a board meeting. You know, they'll typically be spending a lot of time in between board meetings, not just meeting with you, but tracking the industry, talking to customers, those kinds of things. Perfect. Okay. So that's good advice that you did not know how to handle a board. And also I like that good board hygiene. I think mm-hmm. that's really great. Now you can have sympathy for people that were like you when you were 33 years old, <laughs> which you got to remember and have sympathy. After that, what was your, what were your next steps that eventually landed you where you are? So the next step was when our, old, our oldest son was born, Barkley. And like many new parents became obsessed with child development and education. And this is back when multimedia was the buzzword du jour. So that, ah, great. I'll do children's educational media. That will be awesome. And started a company called Active Arts, which went on to win lots of both education industry and general consumer product of the year awards, even like Time and CNN, and pretty much burned through our savings. So why didn't it work? Part of it was there was a bit of an implosion of children's media at the time, which I knew going in, but I had all the hubris of having run a company that doubled sales and profits every year for five years. So it's like, oh, of course, we'll be different because we'll be smarter about it. Some of that might have been from being 33 as well. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I've stayed in touch with everybody from the company, which I can say I'm pretty proud of because we did attract some great people to active arts. But this scar tissue learning was, was lasting. So when we finally realized, you know what, this isn't happening we can get all these awards and reviews all day long, but we're not seeing the sell through and we're not able to attract new investment. Called my friend, Greg Lang, who'd been one of my buddies from Intel from the old days, who'd gone on to become a VP of all the networking business there. And he said, hey, Greg, I'm shutting down Active Arts. need to get a job. Can I use you as a reference? And uh, this is in 1998. And he said, Sure. He goes, but you know, I'm actually looking for someone to come be the general manager for a Bluetooth networking business. Would you be interested in doing that? It's like, wow, that sounds really cool. What's Bluetooth? Perfect. All right. Put a pin in that because I think that's, I want to get back to that for sure. But I want to step one step back into active arts. And if you could give yourself one piece of advice in that active arts adventure, in hindsight, what would that piece of advice be? That's easy because I've thought of it often and shared it with other entrepreneurs who I thought were in a similar situation. So part of the reason we burned through so much of our life savings was because I had taken in a small amount of friends and family money. It was just a a few hundred thousand dollars, but this was money from our friends and family, people I cared very deeply about and felt obligated to. So once that was in, I really felt like I needed to follow my sword to make that company successful until we just couldn't anymore. When we finally made the tough decision to shut it down and sent a letter out to all the investors explaining what we were doing and why and you know thanking them for their support and all of that, 
I got contacted by a lot of the investors saying, why didn't you do this a year ago or a year and a half ago? Why didn't you shut it down? What? Yeah. Why yeah. didn't I shut it down? And it's like, well, I've, and and in my own mind, I thought, well, I couldn't. I'd taken your money. I needed, I needed to fall on my sword, do everything I could to make it successful. And they're like, yeah, we just kept shaking out. We have no idea why you kept at it for so long. And so realizing that your friends and family, first of all, if you're smart about it, they're all accredited investors who are clearly made aware of the fact that this is, they should only be investing money that they can really lose without affecting their lifestyle. And if you do that part properly, then chances are they're really going to be a lot more sympathetic to your situation than you realize. And I could have easily, a year and a half in, just actually called a meeting of the investors to say, wow, this is not clicking the way we thought. We don't have a good pivot. We can't attract new money. And I was so myopic in trying to deliver on the business plan that I had committed to. It didn't even occur to me to say like, well, wait, maybe the investors would just be happy if we just shut it down now and got on with our lives. But I think that also that speaks to so many times this whole never quit philosophy, never all of these platitudes never quit, that people really can't be curious about analyzing sunk costs and opportunity costs. And the sunk costs are so much more obvious. You see the sunk costs, they're there. The opportunity costs, you really have to project and they're not that clear. So I think that's a very common problem is not being curious about, are you valuing sunk costs at the expense of opportunity costs? So then you talk to Greg and he says, we need a general manager of the Bluetooth or the wireless division. And you said, what's Bluetooth? Right. So uh, this is December of 98. He hired me to do that. And then he left on vacation. And so he came back in uh, mid-January and he said, hey, welcome back. Uh, we need to talk. And kind of walked him through. I said, you know, I've got my arms around this Bluetooth stuff, and it's really not a networking technology. And I'm pretty sure it's not a business you want to be in. And explained why. And he's like, oh, wow, okay. And I said, but while I was doing that, I came across this other technology that's kind of more like a wireless ethernet. It's called 802.11. And why don't I go research that instead? And Greg was like, well, you just convinced me you shouldn't be doing what I just hired you to do. So yeah, go do that. So uh, ended up starting Intel's 802.11 business, which a year later became known as Wi-Fi and ran the Wi-Fi division for a couple of years. I remember you brought home this sticker, this bumper sticker, and it said, got, and then it said W-I-F-I. -I. And I remember saying, what's Wi-Fi? <laughs> now I think about it, it's such a common thing, but I mean, what is Wi-Fi? <laughs> and you're like, Becky, it's Wi-Fi. I hadn't heard of, I mean, I didn't, you know, I hadn't heard of Wi-Fi. Yeah, it was a, a, a new term of art. And it's interesting, one of the other things that I think most entrepreneurs get wrong and probably wouldn't start businesses if they didn't get wrong was when I started the Wi-Fi division, if you look at our business plans and our forecasts, the early years we way overestimated how quickly this radically new networking technology would be adopted. And in the later years, we way underestimated it. 
Wait, so in, you're saying in the very beginning, you overestimated how fast it would be adopted. And then there was a tipping point where you continue, then you adjusted that estimation and then it was adopted so, even faster. At the, uh, explain so, that, I don't so, understand. So at Intel, when you're making a semiconductor product, because of the cost and lead time to develop a fabrication plant to make the chips, we typically have to do what we call the long range plan, which at Intel is 10 years. So we had to deliver a forecast of what we thought. Now, granted, this whole category didn't even exist and we were being asked to put together a 10-year forecast. So I said, okay, I can give you a forecast, but please understand all of the compounding assumptions going into it because I know I'm going to be way off. I just don't know if I'm going to be way high or way low. Well, in hindsight, and it's a pretty common error, in the early years, the first few years of Wi-Fi, I way overestimated what I thought we would sell. And in the later years, I way underestimated what I thought we would sell. Now, one of those was because something we did, which was when Intel launched the Centrino, the first mobile-centric laptop processor, we got an agreement with the processor group to kit our Wi-Fi chipset with the Centrino mobile processor chipset. So at the time, about seven, six, seven percent of laptops left the factory with Wi-Fi. And we flipped the switch with this Centrino program. So after a year, about 90% of all laptops left the factory with Wi-Fi pre-installed. So it was just built in. So before the laptops left the factory with Wi-Fi, was it just not that many people were accessing Wi-Fi or how were they accessing it? So even when it left the factory, they were using an add-in card. Oh, sticking um, typically. it. Okay. Um, I'm remembering now. Yes. So poetically named PCM CIA cards. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could have remembered all of those initials. And then eventually you could just buy. So if, if you weren't using Wi-Fi, then when your computer came with it, it was like, oh, I might as well because it's in my computer. Well, as it turns out at the time, almost all Fortune 2000 companies banned Wi-Fi from being used on premise. Why? They thought it was a security risk. So remember, the IT guys were not RF engineers, radio frequency engineers. They were IT guys. And it it scared them. It just seemed like a you know more points of vulnerability. Should it have so, scared them? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so they, 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 they weren't radio frequency guys, but they were right to be scared. Yeah, they weren't dumb. Okay. One of the things, and actually this is what got me into venture capital, was once we got permission to include our Wi-Fi chipset with the mobile processor, we then had to convince the world that they should care about that Wi-Fi that was going to be in their laptops. And we certainly needed the corporate laptops, which carry a big price premium, especially to not ban them because <laughs> that would defeat the whole purpose of, right. of including them, right? So one of my first tasks was go over to Intel Capital and build out an ecosystem that would make the world more fertile for Wi-Fi to thrive. Okay, so just now that we're jumping back into venture capital, just really quickly, what does it mean to build out an ecosystem? Because I hear that a lot. Ecosystem is one of those things. What does it mean to build out an ecosystem? So in the case of these Wi-Fi enabled laptops, the first thing was looking at, well, where can you use these things? Well, if you want to be able to use them at work, we need there to be better 
Wi-Fi deployment tools so people can know how to get better coverage within a building. We need better security and manageability tools so the IT guys can be reassured that their network is still secure, even though people have wireless access, that the wrong people don't get wireless access when you put this Wi-Fi stuff in. So some of my initial investments companies like Air Magnet, which went on to really dominate the deployment kind of IT Wi-Fi deployment tools. So that's an advantage really of a strategic venture company yeah. versus a traditional non-strategic in that you could go as the GM of the Wi-Fi division to the venture capital arm and say, help find companies to invest in that will help grow this Wi-Fi business. So that's what you mean by building out the ecosystem. Right. It's just creating a more fertile environment. Like what are all the interdependencies? If you want, you know, some something big to happen, what are all the stars that need to align to make that possible. So a company who has a technology that needs that would benefit from going to a more strategic venture company than maybe a more traditional venture company, or is that overstating it? Well, you wanna look at people whose interests are really aligned with yours. So if you're trying to create a new category, it's incredibly difficult for one company, even a Fortune 500 company to create a new category. As a startup, it's just staggering odds. So you want to line up all the people that may be relevant. So think of you know something newer like in virtual reality. Oculus kind of kicked off the modern, you know, this third wave of virtual reality. But there are a lot of issues with it that need to be overcome, including things like better display technology. So, okay, let's go invest in companies that can greatly improve the kind of displays that you might use in that device. The cable that's tethering that back to the PC is annoying as hell and people trip over it and whatever. Um, let's get rid of that cable. But the current Wi-Fi technology isn't sufficient for the amount of bandwidth you need at a low enough latency to deliver VR experience without people getting sick because of, of uh, the extra latency. It's really just breaking things down to what is everything that needs to happen for this thing to just thrive for mass adoption? Okay, so going back to someone with an idea, because these are big, I mean, the Oculus Rift was a big, although wasn't it a Kickstarter idea initially? They had yeah. a very successful Kickstarter. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, they were a Kickstarter idea. So you look at Kickstarter and you look at some of these crowdfunding sources, and then you look at Shark Tank. Someone has an idea and they're listening to this episode, what are some things that you would advise them about how to take an idea forward? And I'll take a step back and say that one of the things that seems to be a question that I've actually heard people ask that you've explained many times is that sometimes people don't understand that no one wants to invest, well, I shouldn't say no one, a venture capitalist doesn't want to invest in your idea if there's no exit, and meaning that there's no way that they can get their money back out. So that seems to be a common misnomer. Like they think, oh, you're going to invest, but they don't think, wait a minute, how do you get your money out? It's not, otherwise that's called a donation, right? Right. Yeah. In the industry, people often refer to lifestyle businesses. It's like, yeah, that can be a nice profitable business. It can give you a very nice lifestyle, but you're never going to be over 20 million a year and Therefore, you will never be able to go public and no one's going to acquire you for a big sum. So 
it doesn't make sense for traditional venture capital. There are a lot of other ways to fund things, and they're not in any way mutually exclusive. So some of the savvier people with early stage ideas, particularly for like a consumer type product, will actually go on Kickstarter. And this can actually help your venture fundraising. I did an investment in a company called Avagant that we thought um, was going to have a very successful Kickstarter. And I remember my colleague, Rob Rupert, and I were racing to get the deal done before the Kickstarter was done because we knew that if they really exceeded what they were looking for, the valuation was going to get jacked way up on us. So if you have an idea, Kickstarter is one way of doing it. But that I think the, a successful Kickstarter is so much more of a big marketing extravaganza now than just putting a great idea. So you have a great idea. What do you require? What do you suggest someone does with a good idea? So long before Kickstarter, when you're really at the the idea stage, I think the first thing you need to do is start testing your idea. So if it's a software product, there's all kinds of great tools for prototyping what the user experience is going to be like and simulating it. So you can actually get people in your target audience to sit down in front of a computer or on their phones, depending on what kind of software it is, and and see, is, how do you do is that? this compelling? How do you do that? So you have the tools, but how do you go find those people to test? You're saying focus group it? There's lots of ways. You can focus group. You can go to Amazon Turk. You can go to friends and family. Initially, I think you want to start with people you actually know, and you want to start with very unpolished prototypes. When something is very polished, your feedback is going to be more constrained. People are going to think, oh, well, they're already kind of locked into this. I'm not going to mention that this thing annoys me or that. So, you know, if you can show just a storyboard from somebody with kindergarten level illustration skills, that's great. Back when I was in the ad business, one of the things I learned is like when when we're brainstorming, we work with chicken scratches and then ideas really fly. When we take it to the client, we want them to say yes. Then it's all buttoned down and polished, and it looks like it's already locked in, so they don't try to quibble over things. Well, that's what I talk about, deviation from expected outcomes. So when you want someone to be curious is really when you're in the brainstorming stage. But when you want them to sign on the dotted line, you really don't need to be at peak curiosity at that time. So you have this idea. Now, you said to bring it to people you know, but aren't people you know less likely to give you honest advice? Well, the the early stage is sort of the, the quick sanity check. I mean... It's very easy to fall in love with an idea. I do all um, the time. And, and, and you know, there's there's an there's an old saying in venture capital that you know no business plan ever survives its first meeting with a customer. <laughs> and so, with your idea, and, and typically people these ideas are focused on a product, not a business, and which are different things. But you can build a business around a product. You know, you can start. You know, certainly research all the different things people are using today to solve whatever problem you think you're solving. But find people that are accessible to you, but and hopefully ones that are comfortable enough with you to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Well, you said something that I want to kind of pull out, which is solving a problem. Do you think that products that solve problems, and it could be a, you know, a, a hardcore problem, or it could just be a, a nagging problem, do all products have to solve problems? If you look at solving problems broadly, so if you think of something like Snapchat, 
technically it was solving a problem. In the early days of Snapchat, the problem was how do I send dick pics without leaving evidence, right? Right. That's what totally apparently motivated those guys in the beginning. So for some class of people, that was a perceived problem. Um, so it's not all like a typical hard technology problem or, gee, I need a cure for cancer kind of problem. It's I just um, want you to know that I'm biting my tongue to keep this appropriate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> edge, maybe edge up to PG-13, but okay. Yeah, exactly. Then the problem was, how do I move it from those dick pics and so therefore they created these, uh, Snapchat again, they created these filters that only worked on your face. And that was an easy way to solve the problem of, okay, we're done with just making, being a company about dick pics. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. Okay, so if you look at- if, right. even if and, and, and there the problem solving was one of social engagement. How do I keep tabs with my friends and let them know I'm thinking about them or- or, send, or, or looking or, for social validation or whatever. The problems are maybe more emotional versus how do I get this two-ton load over an unpaved road? But I think it's interesting to think about any product in terms of the problem it does solve because then when you're taking your idea to potential customers, ideally you're taking it to customers for whom that is a problem. Right. And, and one of the things that I think people have been getting better about over the last I guess 15 years that I've been in venture capital is getting comfortable with focusing on who you're not trying to reach as much as who you are. Yeah. So many businesses fail by trying to spread themselves too thin and they they develop these kind of Frankenstein products that are just awkward and, and painful to use because they're trying to cram too much in there and they don't have a clear vision of who they're really trying to optimize for. So being able to walk away from certain classes of customer and say, you know, we're not going to worry about large enterprises or we're not going to worry about, like, in the case of Snapchat, about 50-year-olds and older, yet anyway. Right, right. So the more you can narrow your customer focus, uh, not just demographically, but psychographically, the more refined and elegant your product can be and the more successful it will be, and and the less friction it's gonna run into when you try to get it adopted. Okay, that makes total sense. Now I wanna know, because I could, and maybe we'll do, since, since I have you captive and I can always bribe you into coming up to the studio from downstairs, I'd like to engage you in further conversations about this. But since we have a limited amount sure. of time, the only thing I'd like to be able to close with what does someone and what should someone do to prepare to, quote, have coffee with a venture capitalist or even in a more formal setting, meet with and give a proposal to a venture capitalist? What are some things that people think that they should do that they shouldn't do? And what are some things that they should do that they're not doing? Well, first of all, as with any meeting in business is start with what is the desired outcome you want from this meeting? Is, is your goal to try to solicit actual investment investigation from them? Is your goal just for casual feedback on your concept? I mean, a lot of venture capitalists actually are very savvy about a lot of businesses and, and technologies and can make connections. So if you're you know a very savvy entrepreneur, you'll probably already know some venture capitalists. If not, you can get introductions through friends or friends of friends. 
the two degrees or whatever on LinkedIn. And what you might do is start nurturing them to get them emotionally somewhat vested in, in your progress. So you could approach them very early and say, hey, I don't have a new business or anything yet. I'm just working on this new concept. Hey, can I just grab some coffee and get your reactions to? And typically, these people are great sounding boards and they can help you even refine your concept and then even introduce you to, oh, you know, that's great, but you're going to need somebody who's an expert in biometric authentication. I know a guy, let me do an online intro for you. Wait a minute. So what if you bring this idea and you open the kimono and share that idea and they have another investment in a company that could be competitive or could be, how do you protect your idea by asking for coffee and advice? You you go to their website and you can find out who their current investments are. And certainly if they have a competitive investment, don't approach them. This is a common misperception among first-time entrepreneurs. Ideas really aren't that valuable. If just the mere idea somebody else can take and run with and kind of blow you out of the water, you didn't have a business there anyway. So give me an example of an idea that is not a business, an idea that is a business, because I don't really quite understand. So an idea that is a business is something that would require actual intellectual property to be developed to make it run to can you give an example actually the first example was one that was counter to that and it's the one that disproves what i'm saying and i'll come come back to that (laughs) such a liar (laughs) yeah so a, a good example it would be you know something like there's a company called shot tracker which is a collection of sensors and software that helps basketball players and coaches track their shots, just like it, it sounds, and analyze where they're hitting, where they're not hitting, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. There's a lot of work that went into taking those collection of sensors and getting the right data from it and then understanding how to read that data and put it into a meaningful report that coaches and players could actually learn from. The example I was thinking of that sort of counter to it is I was approached in the earliest days of ways like seed funding round of ways. Is that, that's the navigation? It's a navigation app and they were crowdsourcing traffic. And I remember talking to the founder. It's like, so so you want people to, while they're driving to call when they notice traffic and that will do some kind of real-time update. And and so once it's at a critical mass, then people can kind of see when they're busy. But until you get a critical mass in a given region, using it won't get you any benefit. And he's like, that's right. And I said, but... Your map data is syndicated from the same people that everyone else gets it from. And and the crowdsourcing, there was no nothing proprietary in that. So there was zero technical barrier to adoption. But the guy executed brilliantly. So I turned them down because I saw no defensive barriers. They went ahead and became a billion-dollar company. Exactly. They, they didn't worry that they didn't have any barriers to adoption. They just did it. And they kept doing it, and they were relentless. I think your advice of looking it seems kind of obvious, but sometimes the most obvious things aren't really that obvious. Looking up what kinds of investments a particular venture capitalist or a venture capital company is investing in is really good because you can then find ways that might be complementary to what their current investments are, maybe helping build up ecosystems of investments that they've made before, and also to protect yourself in case they're investing in similar kinds of companies. Doing that kind of homework 
it seems obvious, but my guess is not everyone does that. Not everyone does. And it's actually pretty easy to do. Any company, you go out and find people you think are directly or indirectly competitive. You can go on crunchbase.com, find out who their investors are. And you can go to their websites and read about the individual partners. Crunchbase. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, crunchbase.com. Um, so it, it's very easy to do. And actually, a lot of companies in their own about us thing on their webpage will say who their investors are. So it's it literally is minutes to find out that kind of stuff. And it, it is important. But you also can find out who's got some expertise that can be relevant. And there are, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, there are venture capitalists that specialize in all kinds of different industries. So there's, you know, cannabis only venture capitalists, there's food industry only venture capitalists, there's, you know, fashion and entertainment venture capitalists. So whatever you're interested in, find out not just who's a big venture capital name, but who's actually relevant. And if you can find sometimes people that you want as a big customer might have a venture capital arm and they may invest in you because they actually need what you're working on. Give me an example of that. So, um, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so one example, if you're with Citibank and, um, you've got an active venture capital arm and you probably have an open order for, with them to say any breakthrough in cybersecurity, particularly with respect to individual authentication, we want to be in on the inside and be able to trial it early. So let's say you've now developed this great multi-factor authentication where it looks at your iris and your fingerprint and, and maybe even your heart rate patterns and uh, all just when you hold your phone. Well, that's great for any kind of payment oriented thing. So, you know, Citibank would be interested. PayPal would be interested eBay and Amazon would be interested. And a lot of these companies now have their own venture capital arm, right? A lot of them do. And, and even the ones that don't necessarily have a formal venture capital arm, sometimes will make a strategic investment. Last question before I get to the QCQs, quick curious questions. As the idea holder, who would you call ideally in that company or email or contact if they don't have a venture arm? What would be like, a couple of titles of people that you would contact if you don't know anyone? I would start, frankly, the easiest, if you don't know anyone there, go on LinkedIn and do searches against the people that would be the line of business budget owners that would be buying this thing. What would be like a, what would be a job title? Well, it, it just depends on what your thing is. Is this something that someone's going to buy in the finance department, in the sales department, in the training department, in the maintenance department, in, you know? Look for those kind of line of business budget owners for whatever department would be the relevant customer for you. I would also look for titles like director or VP of corporate development. They're typically deal makers. And even if they're not going to do this kind of venture thing, they would know how to navigate their org chart much more efficiently than you'll be able to, to get you in touch with the right person. If, if they think if it's going to be relevant. And frankly, their feedback could be very helpful on if it is or isn't relevant. They may know... Actually, that division you were targeting is phasing out of that. But there's this other group that once we sign the NDA, I can tell you about. And that's right at the heart of what they're working on. Okay. So non-disclosure agreement, NDA. All right. 
So business development, corporate development. All right, this is good. I think this gives a really good overview for people to kind of understand how this works because it is kind of mysterious and so many people have ideas and just don't know where to go. So whether it's a small idea or a big idea or a small idea that could become a big idea, converting it to a problem, identifying who might have that problem and strategically starting those conversations, I think that's really really great. But understanding that venture capitalists, traditional venture capitalists need to get out. And we touched on the 10-year thing, but you know, if you're thinking, well, no, this is a lifestyle business and I'm going to take out, you know, X amount every year and have this lifestyle business that I'm going to pass on to my family, uh, traditional venture capitalist is probably not going to be But there are lots of other ways to get those things funded. Right. And 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 that was good. The QCQs as you know, are the quick curious questions that I'd like to ask a couple of QCQs of you. So okay. what in the last handful of months has been your most appreciated under $100 purchase? Ooh, I would say for under $100, the most appreciated would probably be uh, some of the concert videos the last Blu-ray I got was uh, Dire Straits live in concert. But you know, I love watching concert videos while I'm on the elliptical. Mm-hmm. Actually, I just discovered fairly recently that Amazon Prime, if you're an Amazon Prime member, the number of free concert videos they have that are like really hard to find anywhere else, even like on Amazon, whatever, um, it's pretty impressive. So actually, mm. like earlier today, I was watching Gil Scott Heron in Paris, and it was awesome. Was it as good as one of the last concerts you and I saw at Marcus Garvey Park? It was on par. It was really? on par with that performance from Gil Scott Heron. That, yeah, that was like the week before he died. Yeah, we were like, that was pretty eventful. That was pretty awesome. And the final question, just if, because of time, if you could take out a billboard anywhere in the world, where would you put it and what would it say? See, I didn't give you these before you got here. Yeah, ha, that's ha, 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 ha. very challenging. I'll avoid my first instinct other than just to say it would be right across from the Oval Office, but I won't say what it would say. Um, Go (laughs) ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. My second instinct would be. If you don't answer, you're going to be forced to say which thing you want to say across from the White House. (laughs) Okay, I'll, I'll take the easy way out. So across from CenturyLink Field in Seattle, giant billboard that says Rose City Till I Die. So for you non-soccer fans, that is the motto of the Portland Timbers and the Timbers Army, uh, which is arch rivals with the Seattle Sounders. Okay, that's fine. You know, your soccer fanaticism (laughs) has trumped all wise, pithy things you could put on a billboard. I won't judge you, at least not on the air, at least not on this podcast. But the minute I turn this off, I'm going to be like, that was so damn lame. I cannot even believe you. Thank you so much for this. I think it was really fun. Did you think it was good? Thanks. Yeah, I had a good time. Okay, good. Then I can weasel you into round two. And I'll be curious, you know, if people want to hear more what questions they have, then maybe I can weasel you to come on fairly regularly because I think it's very interesting to, and maybe a peek into VR and a peek into artificial intelligence and a peek into augmented reality, that could be kind of fun. So maybe I'll weasel you in for that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Steven Saltzman is a serial entrepreneur and a venture capitalist with Intel Capital. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.